Good morning, church. It's good to be with you again. Um, enjoyed my time with you last night and went back heart full and grateful to God. I um, want to thank Pastor Tim again for the opportunity to be here and the leadership of your church for the opportunity to be here to be a part of this Bible conference. Uh, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It has been a blessing seeing you, dear saints, and after my sermon last night to call you servants and slaves of God to spend the three past days seeing you all spend time together in the word and fellowship with one another. Uh, based on the words of Jesus, what it demonstrates to me is that you value God's word and uh, being in fellowship with one another. It is not easy to ask anyone in America today to give up about three days uh, to be in fellowship and in church. And so this speaks to what you value, where your treasure is, and where your heart is. But I also want to thank my extended family uh, once again for being here and so glad to have our nanny uh, in church today and a great opportunity to, to fellowship together. Last night, I said in my sermon, titled Contending for the Faith, that we are told to contend for the faith because we know that we are fighting and contending from a position of strength and victory. We are exhorted to speak and not be silent. We must contend for truth. However, for the truth, to contend for the truth sometimes comes at a cost, which many people are either too afraid to expose themselves to or unwilling to take such risk. There is a cost attached to contending for the faith. I think in Christendom, sometimes we preachers do a very terrible job of explaining what the call to follow Jesus fully entails. We talk about the benefits of it, and we sell people on the idea of forgiveness of sins, but we miss out on the part where there is a cost to following Jesus Christ. Jesus asked a pertinent question in Luke chapter 14, verse 28, that I think we must ask ourselves as we saturate our minds with God's word this morning. And here's what Jesus said. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? As we consider being used by God to contend for the faith, let us come to the task with our eyes wide open and our minds fully ready for what it takes. While the cost may be steep for some of us, not everyone experiences the same amount of persecution or suffering or exposure to hardships. We shall see that the benefits far outweigh the cost. So today I'll be preaching on contending for the faith count the cost. Contending for the faith, count the cost. So let's pray and ask God to bless us as we go into his word 
And before we do that, I just want to say thank you for the song this morning. Trust and obey. Both songs from 257 and 261. The chorus in 257, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, says, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Those old English for over and over. Trust and obey. For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. The first stanza says, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Saints of God, servants of God this morning, as we go to God in prayer, let us trust and obey. The encouragement after our conference is over and we return to our homes, trust and obey. And even this morning, we're asking the Spirit of God to help us to trust and obey Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. What a great privilege it is to gather in your presence with your saints, with your servants. What a great honor you've bestowed upon us to be called children of God. And that is what we are. Not by personal merit, but by the lavish grace that you have poured out upon us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, it is my prayer this morning as I come before your great people. I ask that you would help me and enable me by the Spirit to proclaim the truth of God's word with clarity and conviction. I pray that the Spirit will take these truths and apply it to all our hearts, that we may understand it, that we may understand its ramifications and its implications for our lives. But I pray, Father, more importantly, that we would obey you as you reveal to each and every one of us areas of our lives in which you call us to respond to your word. And so may the word of God go forth in power and may the faith of all who hear rest not on the convincing words of a man's wisdom, but on the power of God. So Lord, accomplish these things for your great glory alone. And for the good of your church, we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people say, amen. So open your Bibles with me to Jude, and there's only one chapter in there. It's a very short letter, but packed with very important truths. And so we're going to read the same text that I read to you last night, but with a different focus today. So Jude, the first four verses, and Jude, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes these words. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, 
it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, forgive me, I have to lay the ground for where I'm going this morning, so I'll be a little bit repetitive with this particular point, and after that, we will go into what I want to talk about this morning. But, but this identification uh, uh, by Jude of himself as a servant of Jesus Christ is pertinent and foundational to where we're headed today also. So yesterday I talked about how that word, servant, doulos, bond servant, slave, is a good, not bad word or title. Today, the word slave has its negative connotations. As I said yesterday, it conjures up painful aspects of our history as a nation. But when Jude uses that word bondservant, or someone, he's referring to someone who is willing and has decided to stay with his master uh, in order that his master will provide for him and his family. And in return, he serves faithfully. When we get saved, all of us, without exception, who were slaves to sin at one point, now become servants. We all become doulas of God. And I said yesterday, we are always slaves. It just depends on whether you are a slave to sin. And Paul makes that very clear. The Bible makes it clear that he who sins is a slave to sin. So you're either in that category... Or if you've been saved by Christ, redeemed, reconciled to God, your sins washed in the blood of Christ and cleansed and forgiven, then you are now a slave of God. So we are always slaves. The question is, which on which side are you? Slave to the devil and to sin or slave of God? Now that title, servant, slave, has a dual purpose. First, God is now responsible for everything about us. That's the benefit of becoming a slave or servant of God. God is now responsible for everything in your life. To the very minutiae, the least details of your life, he's responsible for it. But secondly, we owe him our total allegiance to obey him. That's the duty in salvation. So we have the benefits of salvation for coming to know Christ, but we also have a duty to now obey him as Lord. So we talk about lordship salvation. Some people want the Savior to come and to take away sins and guarantee them access to heaven, but they don't want the lordship and the rulership of Christ over their lives. But there is a duty. We owe allegiance to him who has rescued and reconciled us. And Jude says there are things God requires of us as his servants. First, and here we begin to go into the main thrust, having laid this foundation, this identity as servants, here now comes expectations, the duty. 
Jude says, be willing to call out sin and ungodliness within the church. As a servant of Christ, you must be willing to call out sin and ungodliness within the church. Notice in verse 4, he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, or in some of your translations, licentiousness, and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jude, in no uncertain terms, says, the threat to the faith is coming from not outside, as he writes to this church, he says, from among some who are now inside of you. It is an internal threat. They, they are people who abuse grace by using it as a license to sin. They say things like, we are saved by grace, so it doesn't matter how we live our lives. They twist Paul's words in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, where Paul said, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. That's the purpose of the law. It was given so that it would expose sin. But he goes on to say, But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Now, if you read that the wrong way, as some of these people have said, they say what this means is that when a Christian sins, it only serves to magnify the grace of God. Wrong interpretation. That is not the right interpretation of that text. God is not saying sin more, therefore I'm glorified more. What is the text is actually saying, though, is that the grace of God is plentiful for the sin of mankind. So what these folks have done, so no matter how much people sin, the grace is available to cover sin. But it is not a license to sin. There's a difference in that. So these folks, Judas saying, have turned the grace of God against God. Can you imagine that? That the one who gave you grace, you've now flipped it, and you are now turning the grace of God against God, and in effect, denying the lordship of Jesus Christ. Notice that a servant is supposed to be submitted to his Lord. But in this case, they are denying the very Lord who has rescued and reconciled them. Notice that this was a perversion of grace. And Jude, as a contender for the faith, rather than shying away, calls it out. He calls it out. Today, there are many issues. Fast forward 2,000 plus years later. There are many issues within the church in America that mirror the cultural and the moral revolution in our country. Some people are going so far as to recommend, and I mean Christians, not people outside, but Christians within the church are going so far as to recommend in the church that we revise our sexual morality and the definition of marriage so that we would avoid costly and controversial confrontations with the culture. So some are in favor of redefining marriage. The long-standing rule from Genesis chapter 2, the pattern, the design, the divine order that God had put in place, that marriage is to be within a man, between a man and a woman. 
Some are saying, let's redefine it, because culture is redefining it. Let us embrace LGBTQ plus lifestyle and all the alphabets that come thereafter. Let us uphold gay clergy. So why? We can keep in step with culture. Do you get that reasoning, the purpose? Let's get along with culture. Jude calls such people ungodly in verse 4. And he says, goes further and he says their actions are not upholding grace. They are perverting grace. He goes further, further and he says, and it's a license to sin. And he goes further and he says, and it is a denial of Jesus as our master. Do you understand if you get the full range and spectrum of implications of that, you're saying ungodliness, perversion of grace, License to sin, denial of Jesus Christ as Lord. Who, in their right minds, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, says that is following Christ as a servant. It is everything other than what servant and lordship means and the relationship between those two. So rather than keep in step with the Spirit, which Galatians 5 says, These folks want to keep in step with culture. So I've got a question for you, believer, this morning and for all of us. Where would we rather be? We want to keep in step with culture and be friends with the world? Or we want to be to keep in step with the Spirit, which Galatians 5 clearly commands us to do. Keep in step with the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Why? So that you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, which are antithetical to God. So it's going to take spiritually discerning, bold and courageous people to step up to call these things out in the church. And Jude says we must. Because that is tied into who we are, our identity as the servants of God. And hear me, I'm not saying somebody should go out on a crusade of their own and look for every single thing that's wrong in a church. And because the color of the carpet isn't what you like, then you pick up your baton and start swinging at Pastor Tim. I give him permission to take you out. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But you understand that we are talking about very important issues here. We're not talking about the color of a carpet. We're not talking about the color of the, of, the, of the paints on the wall. We're talking about things that matter for eternity. People's lives are at stake. We're talking about the gospel. Will you stand and contend for truth? Would you be that servant who holds the feet of your church to the word of God? It's not only the pastor that's called to do that. Every single one of you are servants in your own right. Blood-bought, redeemed, and reconciled to God. Jude says you are to be a contender for the faith. Pastors are but mere men. And sometimes we could get off track. It takes the community of believers, all of us together, keeping in step with the Spirit to not stray from the faith 
once for all delivered to the saints. So it's going to take spiritually discerning people, bold and courageous people, to step up in these times. I like how the author of a book titled, We Cannot Be Silent, said, If we have confidence in the gospel, we will have confidence in the compassion of truth. I'll say that again. If we as believers have confidence in the gospel, we will have confidence in the compassion of truth. So in other words, what he's saying is this, those who contend for the truth do so because they understand that the gospel was given to us for human flourishing. It was meant for blessing and restoration. It is an expression of God's compassion and grace to us. That's why God gave us his truth. Not to put us under his thumb, not to oppress us, not to take away the joy of living life. But if you truly understand the gospel, you would say, oh, how wonderful, how great, how glorious, how majestic, how kind of God to give us truth. Why? Because when we live by the gospel, we flourish. I only need to point you to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 1, it was all great. Genesis 2, Adam got a babe. Genesis 3, they sinned. And after that, everything goes crazy. Judgment comes because of sin. The woman is judged. Adam is judged. The devil is judged. And creation, because the master, the one who is supposed to steward creation, has been caused creation, is also cursed. Sin never leads us to flourishing. It never has in the past. It never will. Not today and not until Jesus comes back. So that those who are advocating that the church should abdicate and should leave watered-down truth or completely jettison truth are leading us towards a path of destruction and judgment that will come in the house of God. This brings me to my second point, servants of Christ who are willing to call out sin and ungodliness must, like their master Jesus Christ, here's the point, be willing and prepared to suffer as we contend for the faith. So Jude says we must contend for the faith. We must be willing to call out sin and ungodliness. But in addition to that, we must be willing and prepared to suffer as we contend for the faith. Turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 14. And we're going to read this text. And it's a a, a narrative about Jesus. Jesus was coming off a spiritual high with many people around him now following him. June chapter 14 and starting at verse 25, Luke writes under the inspiration of the Spirit. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? 
lest happily after he had laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulted whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. That's not me speaking. Those are the words of Jesus. Jude says, whoever will be willing to call out sin and ungodliness, like Christ, must be willing and prepared to suffer as we contend for the faith. And Jesus comes off this mighty, wonderful revival high, and there are people around him, milling around him. And you would think he would pull out one of those sweet sermons that would massage them so much. The love of God. God loves you and he is here for you. And, 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 and he wants to make your life better now. Live your best life now. That would be a message that would really rock this place. People would really, that would be great worship that day. Right? Instead, Jesus does what would give any pastor shivers. If you don't hate your mama, if you don't hate your daddy, if you don't hate your children, if you don't hate your family, you cannot be my disciple. Whoa! Imagine that message. How often do we hear that from the pulpits in America? The cost of following Jesus Christ. Jesus is trying to get people to follow him, but that's what he says to them. What he's saying in essence is this, be sure to count the cost before you sign up. I'm not going to hoodwink you into this thing because I fully understand what I'm inviting you into. So the best thing I can do for you is to be very transparent and very honest with you and say, count the cost before you sign up to follow me because it's costly. I don't want you to sign up naively and be surprised later when persecution comes. Because I sold you on a bill of goods that is all health, wealth, and you know how that goes. And then later, the other part of following me comes up and you are to suffer in hardships and endure. And you say, I never read that clause. You never shared that part. That was in fine print. We understand that, don't we? Fine print. I didn't see that. That was not I signed up for. So Jesus requires upfront commitment to the highest possible. He puts it up front so that nothing comes up later where you're going to say, I'm surprised. It took me by surprise. I didn't know this was supposed to be a part of the Christian life. So because you know the cost is high, here's the other thing. You must be willing to give up that which is nearest and dearest to you. 
So Jesus is making clear one thing first. The cost is high if you're going to follow me. But then he now says, be willing to give up that which is nearest and dearest to you. In verses 26 and 27, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. Notice that word hate. He says, you cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. People, I can't emphasize that enough, brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no mixed messaging here. There's no fine print. You can't make a mistake about what Jesus said. Jesus is clear about the cost of following him. He uses extreme language to show that the degree of the cost we may have to pay is extreme. The first challenge is, I am calling you to something that is going to look like you don't like your family. Like you don't like your kids. Now, I'm a dad. I have a wonderful wife. I have two beautiful kids, David, who is 10, and counting. And like Brother Tim said, Luke's 13. It's already 5'5", five, five or thereabouts. And I have a wonderful, lovely daughter, Eliana, 2 plus. And then we have two more who are on the way that are due in December. We've got twins coming. Pray for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I was thinking about this message, I was again brought to my knees. I said, Father, I'm going to preach to people and standing up here as a preacher, it is tempting to think and people may look and say, that's the preacher guy and he should have this together. It should be settled in his heart. And I sat last night as I was looking at the message and I said, Father, who is sufficient for these things? If you were about to be burned at a stake because of your commitments to Christ and you were given two options, refuse to recant your faith you say, I will remain faithful to Jesus, and if you refuse to recant your faith, your family will die. That's one option. Or choose to recant and say, I deny Jesus, and they'll live. What will you do? I can't even begin to imagine being put in such a position to make that kind of a decision. Stand for Christ and hold to your faith and refuse to recant. We're going to kill all of them. I've got four kids and a wife. Oh, I wish it would be easy for me to stand here and just tell you, yeah, this pastor's got together. I would say, I'm not giving up Jesus. 
I'd be lying if I said I would not have serious issues internally to wrestle with that decision. Not because I don't love Christ. But oh, these ones. Oh, these ones. And so sometimes I don't know whether we all understand what we've been called to as followers of Jesus Christ. We wilter and we fade so easily at the slightest sign of pressure. When we are yet to put our lives or the lives of our loved ones on the line for the gospel. For the faith once for all delivered to the saints. What would you do? Now that's a hypothetical for now for us. And praise God we live in a country where we are not in that position constantly. But this happened in time past in the Reformation era. And at other times throughout history and even now, yes, in the 21st century, there are places where people are making those decisions as servants. Will they be ultimate, pay the ultimate allegiance to their Lord? Or will they capitulate? You see, there are people who have endured great suffering and persecution for contending for the faith, and they have given up much. Things and people near and dear to them. And even where you don't lose your life, you lose many liberties. That was the case with Martin Luther, the chief catalyst of Protestantism. He was a professor of biblical interpretation at the University of Wittenberg in Germany. When he drew up his 95 Thesis, and he nailed it to the church door, And what was the 95 Thesis about? It was condemning the Catholic Church for its corrupt practices of selling indulgences or the forgiveness of sins. No man can forgive any other man's sins. Christ alone, God alone. And so he was going after them and contending for the truth within the church. And in 1521, Pope Leo X excommunicated him. Three months later, he was called before to defend his beliefs before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V at the Diet of Worms, where he was famously defiant. I will not recant. Because he refused to recant, the emperor declared him an outlaw and a heretic so that he lost all freedoms and had to go into hiding. You may lose your liberties. And we're coming slowly to that point. The second challenge by Jesus, he says, I am calling you to get on a cross, which means a willingness to die an excruciating death. It's not a metaphor. Some people just want to make that a metaphor, but it's not just a metaphor. The cross means a place of suffering, excruciatus. Join me on the way to martyrdom is the invitation of Jesus Christ. Take up your cross. So counting the cost of discipleship means realizing that True discipleship may require you to pay the highest price. Relationally, materially, financially, and yes, even physically, if it means your life. So let me ask you, saints and servants of God this morning, have you ever asked yourself this question? Am I willing to die for the faith?
for the faith. I'm not saying for your family. For that, maybe you'd be quick to say, I'll, I'll take their place. I'll take my baby's place. I'll take my wife's place. I'll take my kid's place. You good dads do that. When you hear somebody's trying to break into your house, somebody's being hostile to the family, you step up. Good dads do that. You want to be the defender. So maybe you're good enough to want to die for them. But are you willing to die for the truth? The faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. That seems a little bit more abstract, isn't it? It's just truth. Give my life for that. But Jesus says, yes. Because to give your life for truth, and the faith once for all delivered to the saints, is to give your life for me. And what greater testimony of your servanthood to me is much more a statement than that. So next, Jesus says, be willing to go all in. Jesus ends the paragraph in Luke 14, 33, like this. So therefore, any one of you who, goes, who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There are two absolutes in that sentence. The first one is the phrase, anyone. That means every disciple. That means if you heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and trusted in Jesus, and now become a follower of Christ, you become that anyone. You become a servant of Christ. Any one of you who does not renounce all he has, you are now that person. Saint, have you asked yourself that? Am I willing to renounce everything? Oh, how we love our stuff. We love our bass boat, fishing boat. We love our motorcycles. We love that house. We love that car. We love, love, love everything. How much of that stuff has got you? Jesus says, are you willing to renounce it all? In following Jesus, you must assume the cost could be total. We're willing to say, it'll cost me 2% of what I got. I can live with that. It'll cost me 50% of what I got. I can do with that. I'm even to go up to 60% for Jesus to give up stuff. And Jesus says, you can't sign up that way. I don't even need 99.9999999%. That's not what servants say. Servants say, Jesus, I give you my all. I will trust and obey. For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I will trust you with everything that I have. And I'm willing to renounce it for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Finally, look forward to your rich reward in Christ. The call to contend for the faith calls for a high commitment, but it also comes with a wonderful and gracious promise of rich reward. 
Servants who are all in have something to look forward to. That's what Jesus said after he had laid down these high costs. You will be repaid in Luke chapter 14, verse 14. He says, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just, the resurrection of the righteous, the resurrection of the redeemed, the resurrection resurrection of the reconciled. You will receive a reward. And oh, how everything that you've gone through, that you've renounced, that you've given up, will pale in comparison to what God will give to you on that day. The Bible says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived, can even imagine what God has in store for those who love him. You may be the best writer in the room. Someone with the best imaginative mind. You can think up stuff. You are great at coming up with stories and imagining beautiful things. Bring the best artist throughout human history. And God says in his word, No mind has conceived what he has in store. No eye has seen. We have the Sistine Chapel. We have all these wonderful art in our world that we stand in awe and think how beautiful. We look at nature, what God has created, say how marvelous. And it invokes in us a sense of appreciation and gratitude. And yet God says, nothing you can imagine will come close to what I have in store for you. There is no cost, Jesus says, that you can pay in following me that won't be made up to you a thousandfold in the resurrection. So we must count the cost in order to be a disciple. In the end, being a servant And having Jesus means gain, not loss. Like Paul says in Philippians 3.8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Saint, let me ask you, is that you, how you view your life? I count everything loss for just knowing Christ. You see, it's going to take that kind of a mindset to be a contender and a faithful disciple and a servant of Jesus Christ. Are we renewed in our mind? So as we close this morning, remember that in order to contend for the faith, these things I talked about, we must count the cost. We must be willing to call out sin and ungodliness wherever we find it, but most especially within the church. We must be willing and prepared to suffer as we contend for the faith. We must be willing to go all in. And while we do that, we should be encouraged that we are looking forward to a rich reward that God who is just will give us when we stand in his presence. For encouragement, remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always, we are always carrying in the body, in our bodies, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. 
For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Do you get that? That's the attitude of a servant. Death works in me. I'm dying to self, dying to the world, so that life may be given to God's church. So that life may be given to those who are without Christ and know that they are on their pathway to hell. That when we suffer, when we endure, when we contend for the faith, we proclaim the truth, we declare the gospel unashamedly, unabashedly, and boldly and courageously to a world that really needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, we may suffer for it. Death may work in us, but life comes to you. That's the joy of the apostle who writes these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As we close, my last question for you, is that your joy? Is that your joy? Is that what makes you joyful in life? To see a sinner come to repentance, that you suffered for the gospel, that someone may have life. One of the greatest joys of Jesus on that cross was when he hung on that cross. He was in Gethsemane just a few hours earlier, and he was saying, Father, if it were possible, take this cup from me. When he felt and began to sense the weight of the judgment of all our sins, of everyone upon him, that he knew the alienation from the Father that that was going to bring, and the wrath of God fully poured and satisfied in him. On that cross, Jesus says, Father, if it's impossible, take this cup away from me. But then when he hung on that cross, though, and he stayed, he said, not my will, but yours be done in Gethsemane. Then he went to that cross. And when he hung on that cross, he said, oh, tetelestai, it is finished. It is finished. And with joy, I humbly submit myself to God the Father, that he will judge me. And upon me, in me, will all the sins of the world be judged. And gladly I bear it for you. Christ, our Lord, served us on that cross. So you don't have a Lord who is asking you to go where he's not willing to go. And actually where he's already gone. For no greater love has a man than to lay down his life for a friend. Folks, what is your joy? May the Spirit of God help us to think through that. Because I do believe that the church of Jesus Christ will be radically transformed if every single one of us, that our greatest joy is not family or the earthly things we have, but our greatest joy is the faith once for all delivered to the saints, living faithfully in allegiance as servants to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray.